Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Lauten Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 177. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 177 you're listening to. My guest today is producer, engineer, mixer, and mastering engineer. I'm talking about Zach Oren, who works with some pretty heavy bands. And when I say heavy bands, I'm talking about very heavy rock, metal, dark metal. You know, I'm not going to try to break down all the genres or subgenres here, but here are some of those that he works with. He works with Immolation, Entheos, Fallujah. Uh, Chelsea Grin, Volume, Saving Grace, Float Face Down, Murder, Death, Kill, As Blood Runs Black, Midnight Chaser, Sovereign Strength, many, many, many bands. I am scrolling through a list of bands. I could probably take the whole rest of the podcast and tell you all of these bands, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, I will include some links in the show notes to get you to those bands. But Zach's had a very interesting journey. Uh, he currently works out of Sharkbite Studios in Oakland, which you've heard me mention many, many times, which is owned by our mutual friend and uh, former WCA alum, Ryan Massey. But he has a long history, Zach has a long history, with uh, Aaron Hellum, who's another producer engineer here in the Bay Area. And Zach and Aaron go back many, many years. They've had what has been known as the studio, and I want to call it a studio series, but it's because there's been so many incarnations, but I'm talking about the studio known as Castle Ultimate, and it's been in different locations. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Zach's journey, the things that he's learned along the way. And at some point we'll have Aaron on and we'll, we'll talk to Aaron about it as well, but we're going to follow that journey with Zach through all the different incarnations of Castle Ultimate and, uh, and where he's at now. So Zach Oren coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Just got back a little while ago from seeing uh, the new Avengers movie, Infinity Wars, with the family. And it was an interesting experience on multiple levels. And number one, uh, the movie was three hours long. Crazy. Uh, Number two, there was a lot of high-profile actors in the movie. Number three, the amount of people employed to do that movie alone was astounding. We stayed to watch the credits because there's always in some of these superhero movies, there's always some, you know, scene at the end that gives you a little hint about, you know, maybe the next movie or gives you just an addition to the story. But really just watching the amount of people in the credits employed and the different countries and the different cities uh, involved in the making of the movie, take all of that along with the fact that now, in what I'm seeing is a is a trend here in the East Bay portion of the Bay Area, and I don't know if those of you who are listening have seen this trend picking up, but theaters are retrofitting their 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 seats to be like luxury recliners. You know, they're like first class seats, so there's there's fewer of them in the theater, so the theater fills up quicker. The price is higher, uh, but you don't because it's an assigned seat. You don't have to struggle to get there for general admission. So. This is interesting on many levels, uh, just to kind of take a kind of a bigger picture view of the movie industry and these little links in the chain, I, I would say, that are used to kind of keep the movie going public coming, you know, a good, long movie, uh, great seats, comfortable. Uh, yes, it was higher priced, but also we're also seeing the um, 
the trend of this uh, movie subscription thing where you pay you know a price every month just like in software and uh, you go and you could see I think a movie a day I don't know who does that who goes to see a movie every day I certainly only see maybe one or two movies a month at most if that and uh, it's very interesting to see how the movie industry deals with changing times and compare that to the recording industry. And it gets me to analyze it in uh, kind of a side-by-side comparison. I I won't go into that side-by-side comparison now, but it might, you know, now that I mention it, and if it hasn't been on your radar, maybe it will be. Pay attention to what the movie industry does to keep everybody employed uh, versus what we're doing and and, or what we're not doing. So something to think about, you know, I don't have any deep, deep thoughts on it. I just wanted to mention those things that caught my attention, the subscription, the luxury seats, the assigned seats. And it was interesting, uh, the assigned seat thing, the first time I'd seen that was, uh, I think it was probably 1999 or maybe 2000. I was in uh, uh, Portugal, I was in uh, Lisbon, uh, Portugal, and went to go see some Nicolas Cage movie with my wife. And we had assigned seats and like these older men with flashlights would show us to our seats. It was very, uh, I don't know, it was kind of old school in some ways. So anyhow, in, in Europe, that may be the assigned seat may be a thing that's been happening for years, but in America, it just seems to be becoming more and more prevalent. So hey, if you need a break from social media, I know you're probably staring at your phone or maybe you're staring at the computer at this time as you're listening to this. Uh, head on over to the sub forum on gearsluts.com that we sponsor called Audio Life. And maybe you've, you know, had a little too much gear talk and in, in the other parts of the forum. So head on over to this sub forum that we sponsor because the topics are geared towards what we talk about here on Working Class Audio. That's work-life balance, money issues, health issues, uh, all the things that go into helping the audio professional do what they do, uh, the things that surround the audio professional. So that's at gearsluts.com. That's audio life. So check that out. Also, head on over to uaudio.com. That's Universal Audio's website. Uh, Check out what they have new in terms of plugins, uh, software releases, and of course, one of my favorite things that they have over there are some fantastic videos with uh, many Working Class Audio alum, including uh, Jakir King and Vance Powell. Check that out at uaudio.com. All right, so let's get to it. My uh, interview with Zach took place over at Hellam Sound, and I mentioned Aaron Hellam earlier. Uh, This is a location now that uh, Aaron let us use to sit and have a discussion. So uh, I went and met with Zach in person and had our chat that you're about to hear. So uh, here we go. Let's get into it. Zach Oren here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Zach. Hi. What was the pivotal moment for you where audio became important enough in your life that you realized, I'm going to do this for a living. I'm going to guess pretty young for your average, if you ask a lot of people that question. I would say when I was 15, and I had already been doing a lot of this tracking stuff, which I haven't mentioned this to you before, but this is how the origin of my career is not in straight up, as you know it, DAW style or tape style recording. It's in DOS-based sequencers and tracking what's called dot .mod and files that were actually an Amiga format that was heavily yeah. used. And I just got into this with bulletin board services and early internet, and I was immediately enamored with computer audio. The second I had a computer, I was like, how do we make this make music? And wanted to just <laughs> figure that out. And then I just started putting free stuff up on America Online and stuff like that. But I'd say you said the moment. The moment was probably when I was 15 and got 
offered a chance to get a job out of nowhere making music for Nintendo 64 game. Wow. And that came out of nowhere basically because I had been putting up some of the files I had been putting up for free distribution on bulletin boards were uh, Primus covers of the band Primus. Oh, yeah. And that's specifically what they wanted for this snowboarding game. So they just threw me in the ring with 10 other people. They were going to just all have make a trial song. And they, it's pretty genius on their part to get a bunch of free tryout labor from all these people. And I was approaching this in an entirely different way than, you know, most people were putting together stuff from samples that were from libraries that were probably, you know, they were pretty awful at the time. When you're doing this, how old are you at the time? I'm 15. Okay. At this time. I've probably been doing it since I was... 12 or 13 is when I started putting those files. You can, the internet's forever. You can still find some of this garbage material I was putting out when I was like 12 and 13 years old with like nonsensical comments with it in the comment section that I can't believe I wrote as a human on earth. So, you know, stuff like that. And that evolves though. And I mean, I was putting a lot of work into it. I was probably, I mean, I'm calling it work. It was fun for me, but I was just putting in probably three or four hours a day into this. I was ignoring all schoolwork. This is all I really cared about doing for some reason. Mm-hmm. Probably because I was feeling a connection, you know, just looking back at it, at what childhood me was thinking is because I was being appreciated for something because people were, you know, downloading these, commenting on them on, I don't even want to call it the internet. It wasn't the internet really at that time. It's bulletin boards. It's call up, like dial, dial up. up literal like you know stuff you would read in the back of a newspaper is where you'd find where these bulletin board numbers were and then later CompuServe and america online yeah we're talking we're talking pre pre, worldwide web pre pre major internet like when midway games contacted me it wasn't through the internet it was through america online handles Uh. when you used to email people and you didn't Right at AOL.com or something. You would just write to Zach Oren, which is, you know, I bet that account still is active too, but I don't, haven't seen it in a good 20 years. So where did that take you from doing that, that type of work? Where did that lead to? And at this point now I'm playing guitar and bass. Okay. And I'm playing in like my first few bands I'm playing in. And I immediately want to get into recording for real. I got that job off that first try out through that. And luckily they were in Seattle or I'm pretty sure they would have never hired a miner. I'd signed all sorts of contracts that were probably illegal, had to sign up for BMI and get all this stuff sorted away. But doing that was a real adventure. Just doing that thing and getting paid real adult money for it really changed my life. And the fact that my parents, you know, for better or worse, you know, parents don't give kids money like I was earning, you know, like they didn't really support necessarily me doing all this computer music stuff. They probably thought I was messing around, jerking off, doing garbage. And then for it to kind of blow up in their face and the fact that I was then earning money and I was able to buy a car right as I turned 16. I had a car and a driver's license the second I could was like, and that was so empowering not, I'm not kid. trying to make a yeah. pun here, but yeah. were, you, were you very driven at that age to to <laughs> yes to do to become independent because that does yeah, I empower was, yeah. some uh, a teenager to be getting that kind of money. It was extremely empowering, and like it wasn't like a ton of money, but you know it was enough that I was able to buy a, a '86 Accord and like have a car. Yeah, and 
be that kid who had the car or, you know, one of them, but like in that it was mine and it was my own personal property. And then the next, I got another one of these jobs and then I started really starting to get a bit of studio equipment. Okay. Just basic stuff, but, you know, like having a Behringer mixer, an actual audio interface. I didn't even have an audio interface when I was doing this stuff. I was just using a sound blaster card and like the uh, microphone input to create sample libraries and doing all sorts of stuff like that when I should, I was, I've been for my whole life to this moment, really bad about investing into equipment, investing into things. I'm always like what I can get by with as a minimum is perfect. And that was, you know, looking back, horrible mistake in some ways. Interesting. So fast forward me through into full on adulthood. Yeah. Take me down that path. Path is I go from that. I moved out the day I turned 18 because like we just covered, I was constantly seeking independence for whatever reason. I don't know. It was certainly wasn't being driven away, right. but I wanted to do that. So I did that and I started going to SF State just as a uh, music performance major. I lasted exactly one semester doing that before I just thought, nope, I'm just going to record bands for a living. Okay. And started just going to some community college courses and that tapered off over the next year or two because it just felt silly because at this point I'm already just recording bands and doing that more or less full time. I didn't have a lot of work necessarily yet, but also I was paying $500 a month rent, which is by today's standards pretty darn affordable. Yeah. And, you know, I was getting by at least and able to afford my hot dogs I was living off of and such. So I didn't really (laughs) mind and was just slowly building this up. I was also playing music much more seriously than I do these days and playing in bands. And so I'm recording my own bands and I'm gaining tons of experience by doing that and finding out what I need. Was there any type of mentor in your life that or person you looked up to to guide you in your recording path? I'm probably going to offend somebody, but absolutely not. No, no. I mean, some people do, some people don't. I was very much, everything I learned, and I'm sure I could have accelerated even to this day if I had any kind of instruction on what I'm doing. Every time I get some kind of instruction on something, I suddenly am like, oh, well, I've been doing that wrong for 20 years. But, you know, I'm very self-taught to the point where I have some techniques that, especially back 20 years ago, were pretty strange and helped me, I felt. I felt like I had secrets when in reality, I just had approached things from a whole different way. My point is my all my concepts in, that came into my head were self-learned completely, like through various trial and error. There wasn't an internet necessarily like when I was learning a lot of this. So I was creating the techniques, even though they were just, mo- for the most part, just stuff someone could have told me in 10 seconds. And did, did you ever seek uh, any books on the topics? To answer that question, honestly, no. I would wait till I had a problem I wanted to solve. And then if I had to, I would research what needs to be done to solve it, which is probably still how I work today. Like if I want to learn to do something nowadays, I could Google it. Going to community college, that's trailing off. This is in San Francisco you're living. No, no, I'm in Oakland. So I I, I was born and raised in Oakland, California. I lived here, here in Oakland until I was 30 when I moved to Alameda, which if you're not from around here, is basically Oakland. It's just across about a 50-foot channel of water. Right. The moment I moved out, I started making a studio in the apartment I was in. 
I moved back in with my parents when I was 19 for a few years. And that was really where this cultivated. A lot of like, there's recordings out there from my parents' living room that are my first significant records that are in circulation that exist out there. And that's the original studio. And that's when I partnered up with Aaron Hellam, at this point, the guitarist in my band and my best friend, uh-huh. which we're sitting in his studio right now. Yeah, Aaron and I decided to build a studio together in August 2002. We decided we're going to go into business together. He was at this point in the middle or nearing the end of his time at Expressions. So he's learning by the book recording, but he's also learning from me as he had been for the last couple of years about recording. And and the idea of having him and me, we could probably manage to book enough clients, we thought, to be able to support renting something that costs real money per month to do and have it be a dedicated space, not my parents' living room. So Which was definitely a problem that I was in my parents' living room. It was a problem for them, and it was a problem... Uh, it was a problem, for, I'm sure, for everybody. For everybody. But it was also advantageous because I was able to then afford some new gear with the money I'm earning, as opposed to just paying rent with it. It was good for when it was happening. Right. But it highly limited when I could work, how I could work, and those kind of things. <laughs> I would imagine. Well, tell me about the your first spot with Aaron. So my first spot with Aaron, we had from 2002 to 2005, which it was called Castle Ultimate, which I still call what I do Castle Ultimate Productions. But Castle Ultimate was uh, named because my my parents' house was referred to as Castle Moorhagen. That was the name that studio got given because I had a fake booking agent slash manager that was just me by the name of Londo Moorhagen. It's just a made-up character that would talk to bands. It was nothing but a silly joke. And then I believe it was Aaron's girlfriend at the time that suggested when we make the new studio, we call it Castle Ultimate, which we both agreed was the worst name ever and that we should totally go with it. (laughs) And So where did you build a space? So we built the space in West Oakland at that... uh, was still probably the biggest rehearsal facility in Oakland, which is now called Oakland Music Complex. At the time, it was called Soundwave Studios. Oh, okay, okay. And now Soundwave still exists as the hourly rental, but no longer exists as that. They call it Oakland Music Complex. It's new ownership, but it's the same place. And there was a bar in there. That's right. Oh, Ronnie's Bar. So the thing about, yeah, so we really were in the heyday of Soundwave Studios. It's part of why... I think it's a large part of our success at the time. Uh-huh. We took two of the biggest rooms upstairs. I set aside like a few thousand dollars for construction. The number one thing we worked on, which was a huge mistake in retrospect, was floating the floor of this one of the live room. And we built an, a tiny little vocal isolation booth, which in reality was useless nonsense. And Ronnie, the guy from the bar is the guy who built the isolation booth. Right. It's not his fault the booth was useless, but it was useless because it was so small. It was like one of those whisper rooms you may have seen or something like that, except not as large. It was as enough to fit yourself in as a person. So it was barely useful even as an amp isolation room because it would sound boxy in there. Yeah. It was an overall mistake. Tell me about the economics of, of your involvement, you and Aaron, what you put into it, if you don't mind saying. Yeah. How it all worked. So, you know, after the few, you know, couple thousand we spent construction and we did all the construction ourselves, we were just splitting rent 50-50 for years 
literally from 2002 through 2013. So not just at this year, but every time we moved, we moved together. I would say financially, our relationship was and remains somewhat to this day as husband and wife-ish because we had so much trust in each other. I still trust Aaron implicitly. There was never like a concern about things. We would talk about new purchases. We'd go in, have these on them. If someone decided we needed to buy something, we'd buy it and the other person would pay for half of it. And we never had any books of any of this. There's no real accounting out until I was doing my taxes a little better and decided I needed to be a little better, but we would do no accounting, take the band's money. It was just hand-to-mouth type living. And so the tricky part of that relationship that you'd be thinking about is that that means time is split in half too. But bands don't just shuffle into two lines and easily split time with you. You have to somehow juggle this and some band might want to book three weeks in a row. So it was tricky because we'd be expecting the other person to pay their half of the rent. But at the same time, one of us may have been taking up more time that previous month. A little bit of a time imbalance between the two of you? Right, yeah. Which is 100% and the only reason we've split off from each other in 2013. Right. Is Just Aaron hard. especially started seeing like, hey, I've got, I want to book a band for two months possibly here and right. lock out the studio and just have their drums set up for months on end. And I can't, there's no way to do that if we're together. In this, in this incarnation of Castle Ultimate, at Soundwave Studios. Yes. How was the business for you guys? Were you were was, lots of bands coming in? The timing was great. I was at a time in my life that I was doing good work and also the time in the Bay Area recording situation. There was some studios around that were charging a lot of money, not putting out that great of sounding products. And Aaron and I came along at a good time where there was a big hole in the market to record local bands. Mm-hmm. And I think we were charging something like 200 or 240 a day for recording. All inclusive. All inclusive. And we would be, and I was just faster than everybody. Like your band could come in and record a full length with me in the weekend for a couple hundred bucks and it would sound pretty good. You were dialed into what you were doing. You and had we a never, system. we didn't unplug microphones. We didn't unplug anything. Yes, both Aaron and I were very cookie cutter at the time, meaning I had templates that I was starting everything with those days it was just like i have the amp that every band's gonna play that's dialed in and those kind of things okay where nowadays some studios do with like tempers and amp modeling but i'm talking like back then i just everything gear wise we had a couple decent things we had one good microphone and that's it and it's gonna work out it didn't look nice our studio was still just two practice rooms essentially with like carpet on the walls and no real acoustical treatment but, but you high were, ceilings but and, you were doing good work you felt yeah i felt i mean i still like some of the work from that era from the castle ultimate one era uh-huh. you know but at the same time we were restricted by a few things there you do have loud bands playing next oh door my god high yeah. on fire was down the hall from us if they start playing we're just it's your session's kind of cooked at that point right? it's not though we worked through it oh it took a while to pick up but at the time our rent was low enough the two of us were just kids that had never rented something before. But at the same time, we had to work something like six days total to cover the rent. And then everything on top of that is, okay, you know, not profit, but that's our livings. My rent obligations total were probably 800 a month, like between the studio and home. So I only have to work a few days a month 
even just to cover myself. That's pretty affordable in the Bay Area. Right. Well, yeah. Well, it's also 2002. That would never fly these days. But point is, at that point, if we're booking the studio 12 days a month, that's a real bad month by today's standards. But then that was enough to at least keep it going. But there'd be months where we'd have it booked 25 days. And so it was. that's why I say, yes, it was successful enough that we were able to really build. And then we really picked up steam throughout 2003, 2004, really both blossoming and with our careers. And I would say 2004 and 2005 were the busiest years we had in mm-hmm. weird ways because we were recording so much at that time that we were often doing day-nighters, as in like I'd work from 10 to 6 and Aaron would show up and he'd have a client going from 6 to 2 a.m. or something, or sometimes even later doing like 8 a.m. to 4 a.m. sessions, you know, because there's nothing better for profit than working the studio 40 days a month. You sure. Know? I mean, it's it's kind of like an airplane, you know, yeah. it's like you want to constantly have it be yeah. up in the air with passengers. Sounds like you you kind of had that. What were the, uh, the economic lessons after the end of that first incarnation of Castle Ultimate? Well, I'd still say I'm a slow learner with the economics perspective. I probably still don't have that figured out too well, but uh, I don't know. I was Probably learning that we should invest a tiny bit more in the studio, just equipment-wise, because we we would do everything we could to get by on really mediocre equipment. And I'd say that's when we started thinking, okay, maybe if we're going to be running a studio constantly, we should maybe have some at least professional equipment going on. See, that's interesting to me, because a lot of people, by default, that I've talked to, they go to immediately start buying stuff. Right. You didn't do that. I've never... Okay, this is a weird thing about me. I've never had debt of any sort of my life, in large part because I refuse to borrow money for anything. God, I love that. I've always thought, well, why would I borrow money with that had interest? Then I'm just paying to have money. I'd rather just earn what I need to buy such and such, or even better yet, be the person who's got money invested instead. And it's the same thing. I've never bought a house. I can't imagine. I just think of things that way. And I can't get over that. That's why going back to when I'm 15, like I said, you know, I didn't get any recording equipment, even with that first first lump sum of money I got from the Nintendo 64 game, because uh-huh. it was it was ludicrous to me to spend money on something I could already earn money on. This is interesting, because you just said, you don't think you have it quite down economically, yet you immediately, you do what a lot of people don't. You don't go into debt. Well, that's why I don't have a studio. <laughs> that's my. <laughs> I've completely hacked to the system now, but wow. we'll get to that later. You're asking back in 2005, what had well, I learned? Yeah. I had been learning. All lessons are learned slowly. It's hard to remember what you learned 10 years, 15 years ago. Okay. But like I was learning how to book bands. I was learning not to trust that bands will just pay you. I mean, we are dealing with bands here. Bands are the least reliable payment method. And then right. I didn't have any kind of... So I'd say around 2003, 2004 is when we start learning taking deposits was a good idea. Okay. It started becoming a regular problem that, you know, you'd have a band book two weeks and cancel it like 10 days before. <sighs> and those kind of things that were happening and... You know, still happen, but at least I nowadays typically have it safeguarded to some extent. So, what happened to that version of Castle? So that version, I mean, there's a few events that I think precipitated it. So you talked about Ronnie actually for a moment, and the bar and the little. Well, the problem is the bar was illegal. We we all knew it was illegal, but 
it was fun. It was actually kind of a good thing to have there. Place was re- Soundwave was a really fun social place to be in 2004. And that got, sh- when the bar got shut down and it just became, I can't even remember, I think the whole store, because it was really a store, but you know, we're calling it a bar because he served dollar beers and he'd serve them to anyone and everyone that really helped that made it feel good but at the same time you know when that disappeared that just precipitated some negative feelings we were starting to have about the place i don't know if you've heard of be legit but he's a rap artist he was recording literally the room next to us so his subs were real loud you have bands on the other side it's nobody's fault that's loud but we just thought you know if we're gonna be professional about this we're in the wrong location we need to move somewhere where it's not constant bands. Right. And we found a place which we thought was incredible, which turned out to be the worst mistake we ever made. Tell me about that place. Biggest mistake we ever made is we bought a studio in Oakland on MacArthur. It was small, uh, live room-wise, but space-wise, it wasn't too bad. But it was very cheap rent, and it was locked-in rent for the next five years. It was a five-year lease we signed on this place. And it had been a studio... It was previously called Shine On Studios, and it had been a studio for a long time at that point. Like, okay. It had a backyard. It was cozy, and the neighborhood wasn't too bad, which is good if you're going to put a place smack dab in the middle of Oakland. Mm-hmm. And so we just moved on it. And the reason it was a mistake is we didn't do enough due diligence into finding out if that studio was actually doing work. Because the moment we come in, we're doing work 24 hours a day, and immediately neighbors are complaining about us. And it was stipulated somewhere in the lease. And we were told, oh, don't worry about that. It's just standard wording that we can't be doing business past eight o'clock. Well, that was a problem for us at the time. I wouldn't mind that these days. I never want to work past eight anymore. But back then, we were such constant workers. We wanted to do that. And, you know, if we so much as had like anything going on at like nine o'clock, cops would show up at the door. So that was a problem. That was a very big problem for us. Yeah, I'd say so. But then it was even more stuff like, there was a water leak. Then that didn't cause any damage to us, but we'd get some three hundred dollar water bill and start asking, "Well, what's going on?" And that was a problem. And then we'd have also the fact that it wasn't a good live room. It was a very small live room, and that was limiting to our ceiling of our potential. And I should have seen. Well, did we just lock into being at this place for five years? That's probably not the greatest idea. And so we very quickly, because mostly because of the noise complaints and the fact that we were getting basically told we're not allowed to record in our recording studio. We had to start figuring out ways to get out of this deal, which was from this horrible property company. Not very helpful in the whole process with all of this, and I am forever hate them as a company. (laughs) Okay. But eventually, we were only at that studio, Castle Ultimate 2, as we'll call it here, for about five and a half months from the early 2005 to mid-2005. How did you get out of that? First, what you got to do to get out of something like that is a lease assignment, meaning we had to find somebody else who wanted the studio independently on our own. That's the only way out of a deal like that that doesn't involve just defaulting on it. So we didn't do that. We got a lease assignment. It took months and months of negotiating, finding clients, showing a place. And also, we obviously, we need a new studio. And once we found the new studio, we made the smart call to just, to just say, move on this, figure out the lease assignment afterwards, which is what we did. And luckily, that only took a month or so. So we didn't pay much crossover rent where we were paying for both places. Where did you go to from there? So then we went to Castle Ultimate 3, as we'll call it, which, okay, which has was... apparently been a few other studios. This is in, it's actually Oakland. 
people think it's Emeryville, but it's San Pablo and 65th in Oakland. Right. It was spacious. It was a recording studio. It was being rented to us by John Nady, who owns Nady, the yeah. company. And it was his old personal studio from the 70s. It looked like it. It was, uh, it's got concrete floors, dusty, no ventilation cave, but the rent they offered us for it was decent and they didn't bother us. And nobody, generally, nobody bothered us about sound or problems or the fact we have bands hanging out in the parking lot constantly. It was a very fruitful studio for us, despite the fact it looked like crap. The acoustics were awful, but. It was a very functional place. It had a live room, had a tiny, I, I don't want to call it isolation room because it was glass, but they had like a strange glass room in that room. I don't, they called it, it used to be called the drum booth apparently because that's how they did things in the 70s. Right. And then there was an, another isolation vocal whatever room that usually got more so used just as a live tracking amp room. Then there was a whole back room behind the control room, which was the control room was tiny, but it had this back room that my band practiced in and had the Nintendo and had where bands would hang out. Like I said, this whole place was a junk heap, which is the downside. And there was no bathroom inside the place. We eventually built one. It used to be just a communal bathroom, a tiny prison bathroom is how I would describe it. It was okay. Tremendously embarrassing and awful to let clients prison use bathroom. It. I like that. Yeah, people people like to call it that. Yeah. Zach Oren here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. We're going to pause and I'm going to tell you all about the blue black headphones from Audio Technica. That's right, our friends over at Audio Technica have a new set of limited edition headphones. It's the uh, ATHM 50Xs in a blue black color. Very beautiful. If you're tired of the same old dull black and you want to do something a little snazzier, then these blue-black ones are pretty fancy. So uh, check them out. They're a limited edition. You can get them at audio-technica.com. You can buy them right off the website. And uh, that's it. Check them out. Great-looking headphones. Let's get back to it. Zach Oren here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. After the experience at Castle Ultimate 2, Two yeah. did you le- read this lease a month little more thoroughly? Month to month. was right from the get-go. I don't even think it was a year commitment. Quite honestly, I feel like they were desperate to rent the place at the time, even though they didn't lead that on, because it's such a strange and unique place. It's now a keyboard museum, by the way. It's still being used as a music studio. But I feel like you had to find someone in our situation. There's only a few of us in the Bay Area that are looking to get a place that's not a nice spot, but that is zonable to be a recording studio. So same questions. What what are some of the lessons learned out of that Castle Ultimate 3? All sorts of lessons. I, I'd say I cut my teeth at that studio. That's where we really did a lot of growing into who we are today. It was a very, very good time for the most part. We knew the whole time we were there, we didn't want to be there. That's what's funny. We were thinking, <laughs> we're like, okay, this is our temporary spot until we find this nice new situation. But it did give us a place we were functional at for a very long time. At no point did we put work into it, really. The amount of work that would have to go into it to make it nice, even as nice, you know, not just as nice as a room like this or say like a room like Shark Bite down the hall, but just as nice as a place that was presentable. Because I, I think I'm underselling how gross it was. It was oh, a I'm gross place. Sense of this. Ceilings molding. It's like a drop ceiling with like weird molding pails that would occasionally just fall out. Ugh. It was 
There's probably all sorts of weird and illegal hazardous chemicals that took years off our lives there. It was that kind of place, but it was cheap and we were earning a ton of money there. So this is the third incarnation of Castle Ultimate with Aaron. That's right. Mm -hmm. So take me to Castle Ultimate 4. There's also the little misfires in between. So we're here from 2005 to 2009. I'd say we were pretty dead set on leaving by 2008. And we were talking about it constantly. And we had an idea. We went very far with, um, do you know Jingletown Studios? Yeah. So we went very far with the owner of that place. And and just for the listener, Jingletown is, uh, it was originally owned by John Lucchese, Green, Which is who we're talking to. Green Day bought it. Green Day ultimately sold it recently. Uh, this is, you know, Zach and I are sitting here talking uh, in uh, May of 2018, if you're, you know, trying to get your bearings on time. So continue on. Yeah. So at the time, it's John Lucchese we we're talking to. I think it was, I can't remember how this started. I don't remember if he emailed us or I, we emailed him, but it was called Studio 880 at the time. 880, and yeah. No, it was a real nice place. I also knew they had a Studio B and apparently a Studio C. And that the actual lot they were on was huge. And they had even more space. And they had recently opened up offices for music production types. But that there was this whole other space, which that's what we were talking with John about. And we were going to invest a pretty large amount of money that we'd probably have to borrow a little bit of to build Studio D there, which would have been Castle Ultimate 4. We went very far in these negotiations. We had a contract written up with them. We did all this. And Aaron and I are the ones that backed out of it. And we backed out of it simply on a feeling. We were just like, I don't know. I don't know. The place is still going to be pretty small. We're going to be on somebody else's place. It's not our place. And we're paying a lot of money for it. And rent's going to be way higher than we were paying. It was just a large financial commitment. And we weren't sure what we were going to get out of it. And we were also talking with a friend of ours about possibly making a mega studio of sorts where all three of us would engineer out of. And a guy by the name of Sam Pura, who owns the Panda Studios these days in Fremont. And we originally talked about the three of us together, making one big studio where we would have one big live room, three control rooms in a circle off the side of it, a few more smaller live rooms, but you know, that one of us at a time could be doing drums or something, at least in the big room. Big sound isolation, but the three of us combined could afford a pretty large warehouse to build this place but you didn't ultimately do this did it didn't do it and you backed out backed up we didn't back out of that one as much as just never really have it come to fruition plus it leads us to what actually became castle ultimate 4 which was what you originally asked so castle ultimate 4 comes about because sam pura had moved out of his spot which was currently in oakland and had been working out of this place in fremont that we heard was a pretty good deal it used to be a studio called I want to say it was called Studio 880. It was weird. It was like the same name. It was right off the freeway. Okay. So it had this name. But we're in Fremont, like the auto mall area of Fremont. Okay. I don't know how long he had been there, but he contacts us out of the blue and says, hey, I'm going to build my own studio soon. This place I've got, it's a pretty good deal. I've been working out this place. Talk to the guy who I've been renting from before it goes on the market. We, we knew we needed to check it out. We were very tepid on it, though, because we didn't want to go to Fremont. People... Listening to this, probably don't realize, but Fremont's a solid half-hour drive from Oakland. Yep. Neither of us had any interest in moving to Fremont. Depending on traffic. Yeah. Depending on traffic is a very important note to that, that yeah. we're relying on a long freeway drive to yep. get there theoretically daily if we move there. And neither of us had even the slightest inkling that we want to move to that area. So what happened? Well, 
We saw it, met the owner. The place was way too nice for the price he was asking for it. We had to move on it. It was so much better than the place we were working out of. It wasn't larger, but it had a nice live room, very high ceilings, nice disproportionate walls, if you know what I mean. Yep. Had a little stage built into it. There was a piano there. There was a very nicely built live room. It was the perfect size for us. It had a nice bathroom. It was in a, uh, I, I guess you'd call a business park. Okay. It was just, sure. It's just roll. It was a roll up door. You open it up. And this unit happened to be a recording studio. The other ones would be like auto parts manufacturers or computer chip people. Right. And it was fantastic. I loved that studio. I wish I still had it. Give me the summation of what happened there. Shocker. Noise complaints. Let's get kicked out. The problem is we move into studios and then we start actually doing a lot of business and we record loud rock bands. Whereas often what's happened is the people that had been there before us didn't work as much and maybe they were tolerated to a point. Now, we feel almost bad about this this one because we did exactly what we were told we could do. There was no rules against it in theory, but all of a sudden, about a year into it, this computer chip manufacturer next door starts complaining to the real property owners. And the guy we were getting the studio from is not the owner. He was subleasing it to us. Got it. He had some grandfathered in like 1995 rent, which, as you know, the difference between 95 rent and 2010 rent is... astronomical so he's still earning a huge profit just us paying him monthly what we thought was fantastic rent right and they obviously care a lot more about their new computer chip people that are probably paying them well over quadruple what he's paying for the exact same size place so they're the actual owners are looking for any reason to kick the to kick him out. Now, when I walked in and we were just kind of getting set up you were uh, mentioning a little bit of this yep so you start putting the word out that you're having trouble in Fremont. Yep. And ultimately, ultimately, Castle Ultimate 5 is this. Yeah, we're sitting in Castle Ultimate 5 right now, actually. Yeah. Or what was Castle Ultimate 5. And I, and, and I don't mean to gloss over all the, the details of, of number four, but ultimately you wound up in the building uh, that Sharkbite Studios is in. Scott Evans, who's been on the podcast, actually Ryan's been on the podcast too, are in this building and you and Aaron working here for in, in the new Castle ultimate five for a period of time. Long period of time. This, but we've been here since. So we were only in castle ultimate four for a year and a half. Okay. Roughly. Now, when I talked to Ryan, what's great about when Ryan contacted us is he was at somewhat of a crossroads as to what to do with this space, this hallway, which as you just pointed out has five studios in it. The, what it used to be, though, was rehearsal rooms. Mm-hmm. But they bought the warehouse next door and started Jack London Rehearsal, which is a lovely, I don't know, I want to say 50-room rehearsal facility, so, something in that ballpark. And so he wanted all rehearsal out of this side forever. Because it was, uh, I'll admit, when I was recording a shark bite in the mid-2000s, which I've glossed over the fact that I did that, but you know there was kids down the hallway constantly from this uh, from this, this camp, this music camp, which is still here, which is great that it's still here, but it used to be in the same hallway as this major production studio. Right. And there's some ups and downs to that, mostly downs, which are kids playing music that you can hear down the hallway and 
just constant people walking around and parents and children and all sorts of things happen. Just chaos in a hallway of a professional recording studio isn't necessarily a good thing. In fact, it's a bad thing for sure. Yeah. Remember, I was driving Ryan nuts and he had since converted the room that became Castle Ultimate 5 into Sharkbite B, which was a mixed room. But he had a, this, this really nice DigiDesign icon board and he had been borrowing that. And once the person wanted that back, he was starting to look for a new use for that room. And he knew me because I had recorded at Shark Bay at this point about 10 times. Right. Um, he saw that and thought we should talk. And we got to talking. And we, the difference between Ryan and every other landlord I've had is that we knew Ryan and we trusted Ryan. We knew Ryan had no interest in telling us we can't work. Because if you look at it, that's been a problem at really three studios of ours, if you can include the first one, because we couldn't work there when people were playing loud. We wanted a place that we can, knew we can go into at any moment and work. That's a basic need, but one that we failed to fulfill that well in the first four studios. So you asked about lessons learned. We learned we need a place that is important. And the place, you're, the place we're in now is not a junky studio. It's nice looking, it's functional, there's not rotting tiles falling and bathrooms that are uh, needing to be built and tenants around that are giving you hassle. And I mean, it's a, it goes further than that at the time. Things have changed here a lot in the last eight years, too. We kind of started an adventure for Ryan, I think, too. So Ryan helped us build this. We talked to him. We just, I should say Ryan built this with a little bit of help from us. Right. But, you know, we just negotiate was very, very reasonable construction cost with Ryan, which he gave us very good deals on. Yeah. Because he hadn't really done some of this before, but he wanted to get into it and he had help with it too. And what was Shark Bite B and a rehearsal room that was next door that we decided to rent from him. It was for more money than we had paid ever before, but we also knew that this place was solid. We knew Ryan was solid. We knew he wouldn't jack up our rent. We knew he wouldn't do anything shady because we knew him on a somewhat personal level at this point. And it's not like the other landlords we've had that are either very separate from us or actively conspiring against us. When your landlord's a studio owner, that's right. it makes a huge difference Mm because they know what you need. They know what not to hassle you with, and they know how to keep you as, as tenants. And there's other little things we get out of this that are, that seem small, but are helpful. Like there's a bathroom situation here where there's bathrooms that there's janitorial service on. Yeah. There's a very secure front door here. There's a parking lot here. There's the all these things add up, these little right. amenities. And Ryan, I will say this as well. Ryan is a, I, I, I want to reiterate what you said. He's a solid guy. Exactly. He's a trustworthy guy. All of my dealings with him have been solid, above board, no bullshit. And I mentioned to you earlier, oh, I have a key. I don't think Ryan just willy-nilly hands out keys to people he doesn't trust. It's important to me that he's logical. I had concerns in some of our other places before here that, you know, oh, is our owner going to just pop by and walk in and steal stuff or leave a door unlocked? Because things like that had happened before with prior owners who had just, you know, landlords that just didn't follow rules, didn't follow basic ideas of how things should work. This has been easily the best situation we've had. And some of our first landlord was great. I have nothing wrong with him, but everybody past then, we had small little quirks with that were, you know, we didn't, we never trusted them even in the slightest. Now, take me to the point now where you're at, because you and Aaron no longer are co-studio partners. Is that right? Tell me about that. So 
a summation of that? About 2013, we have been dealing with one big problem for, at that point, 11 years, which is that we have one studio and two successful engineers, both trying to work constantly. And Aaron had decided we need to separate off yeah. one way or the other. I think the first initial thing is he thought he was going to have to go get his own place. And he was hoping I would buy out his side of the studio because he, he probably thought that I would stay here. But the opportunity presented itself from Ryan that there could be a way to work out where I could work somewhat full-time out of Sharkbite yeah. and solve a problem with his too, which is that his life at that time was changing a lot because he's now managing this massive rehearsal facility. He's managing Sharkbite. He's also trying to record there, but his re- amount of recording he's able to do is highly limited by his still current life situation that, you know, he can't record 30 days a month. That's not going to happen for right. Ryan when he's also running this he's giant got, business. He's got too many other plates in the air. Yeah. And so he saw... He he already knew and trusted us. We've been working out of his place at this point three years and been doing been very successful out of here. And I, when I said we're starting a we started a journey for Ryan, I should point out we were the first studio to move into this hallway. But right after he built our studio, he subsequently built three more for three different people. They're all now in this hallway, yeah. and one of them's been turned over at this point. But the other two, like you said, Scott Evans, you got another studio that's guy doing electronic stuff and then there's another studio that's a mastering studio it's piper Payne, who's also been on the show and it was previously it was another master studio oh that's right that's right you're kind of freelancing and you don't have studio rent well so that's the thing i do part of how i set up the deal with ryan not to get too into detail about it is that i have a minimum amount of days i'm supposed to fill a month i have a set minimum that i'm doing with shark bite and that's which is a strange thing for my life because the other big change has been that me working out of home a lot more. Okay. I work, I would say at least half my work is from there. And never with clients, but I'm doing a lot of work on my own. I do a lot of mixing and mastering work out of my own home studio. So then the tracking is all done out of Sharkbite now for me. Okay. So it does create a home work balance that's a lot different for me. Okay. It will immediately not work if I ever lose my current living situation, but where I'm able to do that as easily as I am. What do you do to better yourself as an engineer and in other aspects of your life? What are you trying to improve and how do you do that? I feel like I'm constantly trying to improve everything. Over the last few years, especially, I've really started to try to take more pride in what I'm putting out and be very careful to only do projects and only put out projects that I feel will represent me. I haven't advertised one bit for this entire time I've been doing this engineering thing. Mm-hmm. Word of mouth is very important to me and word of recording is even more important. And I'm not necessarily looking to be on like big things, but I want when people hear something I've done, I want it to be something really good. And I think there's a lot of recordings I did in the past that are that way, but there's plenty that I probably could have put more work into and made better. I, I'm just, I'm trying to live with way less regret. Don't, don't regret half-assing something. Don't do those kind of things. Half-ass nothing put out only good work, that kind of thing. Start doing better work today. Yeah. Don't sweat the past. It's done. I do a good job of not thinking about the past too much, but I, I try to learn from mistakes I've made over the years yeah. on both on recording and in life. Yeah. I'll try not to just repeat the same cycle of doing things over and over. I've been trying to be outdoors more. I don't know. I, I'm trying to answer this question in a holistic manner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Because that that plays to, a part in in the recording aspect too, because it it greatly influences. It does. Bands of the last couple of years have gotten an unfairly good deal compared to bands I was working with prior, and it's in large part because I've really honed in a process, and I've been in the same place for a while. Every time I move to a new place and new situation, either with home or with studio, I feel it takes two or three years literally for me to adjust to that and start doing really good work out of that. And my process nowadays is really multifaceted in a good way. I've got the place I track. I don't trust my ears at Sharkbite at all. I trust my ears at my home studio. And then I also trust, I I go running a lot and I listen to my mixes on high quality in-ear headphones. Yeah, And I listen on all three of those sources and my car. And I'm hearing stuff a lot in a lot of different places and all four places that I just referred to, I'm very used to. They haven't changed for me in a while. So I you, know what they sound you, like. You take an average of all these different places to, to make your decision out of. Exactly. And more importantly, I'm used to them. You, you, I don't feel like anybody, even if they step into the most perfect monitoring situation, if they're walking into a studio for the first time, they're going to walk out of there with something that is unbalanced in some way or another. For a while, too. I think it takes a long time to get used to a monitoring situation. And I'm in a spot now where everything's been very consistent for me for a while. And I've learned to like really know what things are actually sounding like and comparing them. So that's something I've been learning. I've been learning that consistencies in listening is very important. And I know we've kind of focused on a singular track of, of your career. And mm-hmm. there's so much more to you, I know. Where can people find out more about you online? Oh, boy. I'm not sure they can. Really? You I'm don't not, have a website? I, I have done no work on my website in years, and I just have it forwarding to my Facebook. So if someone wanted to find out more about me, they like about me personally, they can. my Facebook is public, so it's a good way to see me and who I am in some of my recordings, I guess. So Facebook would be number one answer. I'll put a link in the show notes Number to two that. answer, if they want to hear recordings, you can always... My discographies are very easy to see online. I guess they're all on like all music and discogs.com. Encyclopedia Metallicum seemingly has one of the most extensive, accurate discographies of people, which is always shocking to me that they're up there with websites that hmm. I think are much more commercial. Well, I, you know, we didn't even talk about music slightly in this podcast, but right. I do, I've ended up since about the early 2000s and totally not by choice doing a ton of metal work and a ton of work in extreme metal and those kind of things. So that's, that's what you, that's the bulk of your audio, it's your production bulk of my work. work. It's not the bulk of my listening. It's just the bulk of my work. Interesting. But you're good at it. I hope so. Because your recent post of, of <laughs> what was the name of the band that I mentioned earlier? That uh, You mentioned Next Mortis earlier. Yeah. That sounds amazing. Sounds well, really great. I mean, that was a good project. That was just February this year. Yeah, that's their third record. They did the first. I want to say first two in this studio we're sitting in. Right yeah, now. and for the listener, I'll put a link to to what I'm referring to because it was the really the first taste of of what Zach has, is doing that I heard that I was like, oh, very good. So, well, thank you for being on the show. I appreciate it. I appreciate the time. No problem. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Zach Oren here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Another great interview down. Thanks for listening today. And uh, if you can't stop by our sponsors, that includes Gearsluts.com, Lawton Audio, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Audio Technica. And of course, we got to thank Mr. Cliff Truesdale, Chuck Smith, and Cole Williams. 
And I want to thank you for listening. I appreciate the time you take to listen. Uh, get a tattoo. Spread the word. Uh, take out a billboard. Uh, get the working class audio underwear. Well, that actually doesn't exist. But take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.